Well, good morning, folks. Glad you're here. Why don't you grab your Bible uh, with me and uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be as we continue on in our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, the King and His Kingdom. We find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 13 through 16 this morning, the uh, disciples, the disciples bearing. The disciples bearing. Last week we saw the disciples' blessings with the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. And this morning we see the disciples bearing. The disciples bearing. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. I trust that you're there or close to it. Let's pray and we'll dive right in. Father, it is an incredible privilege for us to be here this morning. Just to pause for a moment to um, set aside things that are happening in our mind, the events of the week the things that are upcoming, and Father, we pray that you would help us now um, to focus with the Holy Spirit's help to be able to hear your word. Father, it is an, a marvelous thing that you have spoken to us, that you have revealed yourself in many ways, and now we come to look at the life of your Son, who is himself the very word of God. And through the Spirit, he inspired this account of his life in the Gospel of Matthew, that we can learn who he is, what he's done, his saving work on our behalf, and Lord, how we can follow him and be a disciple of his. So help us, we pray, towards that end. In particular, Father, we think of this image this morning, the impact that we can have, followers of Jesus Christ, when we are beatitude believers. Lord, we can be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Lord, we pray that over our own lives and over this church, that we would have that kind of impact on this community and even the entire world as the gospel goes out. So help us, we pray. We ask it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people together said, amen. Well, years ago, the uh, communist government in China commissioned a special author, to write a biography of the famous American missionary to the country of China whose name was Hudson Taylor, Hudson Taylor. And they did so with evil intent. See, they wanted this uh, writer, this biographer, to write a, a false account about the life of Hudson Taylor, to distort the facts, to present both Hudson Taylor and, of course, Christianity, which he brought to the country of China in a bad light. And so the author went about doing his research, and as he read and heard stories about this great Christian missionary, Hudson Taylor, he was increasingly impressed by his character and by his attitude and by his actions, by his sacrificial living and by his godly life. And the biographer found it then extremely difficult to carry out his assigned task with a clear conscience. In fact, as he began to dig, as the story goes, eventually, at the risk of even losing his life, he set aside his pen, he renounced his atheism, and he gave his life to Jesus, all because he took a look at the life of a Christian, at the life of, a, of one beatitude believer, if you will, one Hudson Taylor. Friends, whether we realize it or not, our lives as Christians make an impact, have influence on others around us. 
Last week, we began this great sermon of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And there in chapter 5, we see that uh, Matthew laid out the king's platform. You can see it on the screen behind me. This new section in the Gospel of Matthew entitled, The King's Platform. We began the Sermon on the Mount. And we see that the question that Jesus began to ask in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, was this. What does a person look like who will enter the kingdom? In other words, what does a kingdom Christian really look like? And Jesus began to both ask and answer that question at the beginning of his sermon. And and he laid out for us in the Beatitudes, eight attitudes and activities which kingdom people possess, right? In short, saying that they are saved by grace. They're saved by grace. They are being sanctified. They're being made holy unto the image of Christ. They are servants. They're peacemakers. And they suffer for righteousness sake. So last week we saw a picture of what a kingdom Christian looked like. Eight attitudes or eight activities, if you will. And we left our time last week with this question in mind. What type of impact will a beatitude believer have on their world? Right? So if we pursue these eight attitudes and character traits, what kind of impact might that have on our family, on our friends, in our schools, in our town, and in our world? What will their bearing be? Well, Jesus answers that question today in Matthew chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Jesus is going to tell us that if we as followers of Christ, if we pursue these eight actions and these eight attitudes, that we will have this type of impact on our world. So let's begin with a few preliminary observations uh, on these verses, verses 13 through 16. Three preliminary observations to set the table for our sermon, if you will. And then as we get into our text, in verses 13 through 15, we'll see uh, the pictures. Two pictures that Jesus uses to illustrate the type of impact that Christians can have on their world. So we'll begin with some preliminaries. We'll look at two pictures in verses 13 uh, through 15. And then finally, we'll close with the point. That is the point that Jesus is trying to make with these two pictures. The picture of salt and the picture of light. So, let's begin with some preliminary thoughts before we get into our text. Three preliminary observations to help us understand this section that we'll be in today. First of all, Jesus begins each picture. There are two pictures that he's going to lay out for us. He begins each picture by placing the pronoun you, speaking of his followers, you. He begins each picture by placing the pronoun you at the beginning of the sentence. And he does so for emphasis. He's making a point. In the Greek language, you can, uh, you can place certain words in certain places for emphasis. And here, the, uh, the, the, the you, the person that Jesus is addressing, is emphasized. So he says, you are the salt of the earth. And he says things like, you are the light of the world. And by doing this, he emphasizes his followers' unique identity. Our unique identity as the church. Our unique identity as Christians. This is who we are. 
the late great professor at Dallas Seminary, Professor Howard Hendricks, we simply called him Prof, because that's who he was to us, Prof. He once said this. He said, one of the great problems with the church has been an identity crisis. He says, we don't understand who we are. We don't understand why we are here, and we don't understand what we should be doing. An identity crisis. Well, Jesus is going to help us understand and deal with the American church's identity crisis. He's going to say, we are salt. We are light. He's going to reveal to us the very DNA, if you will, of the church. Revealing the type of impact that we can and should have on the world around us. Well, second observation. Jesus follows each of these images by showing that our influence, the type of influence that we can have, salt of the earth, light of the world. He follows these statements of our identity by showing that our influence and our impact can be lost or diminished. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But then he says things like, but, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Or he says things like, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. In other words, our impact is dependent upon our pursuit of the attitudes and the actions laid out for us last week in the Beatitudes. So, if we are going to be the lights of the world, and if we are going to be the salt of the earth, then we will only do so insofar as we pursue being peacemakers, as we pursue um, being meek, as we pursue uh, being merciful, and so on and so forth. So he begins with the emphatic you, showing us our potential impact. He then says, but that impact can be diminished. Third, Jesus will close this little section in verse 16 with the point that he's trying to make. The point that he's trying to make, saying that when we are salt and when we are light, that other people will, quote, see your good deeds, see your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, in verse 16, he's going to tell us the point. The end goal of being salt and the end goal of being light is not to bring glory to ourselves, but it's to bring glory to our heavenly Father. So, with these three things in mind, let's move from the preliminaries into the two pictures that Jesus gives us of the type of impact that beatitude believers can have on their world. Starting in verse 13 with the image of salt. The image of salt. There in verse 13, he begins by likening our impact, the impact of the local church of Christians, to the impact of salt. Notice, he begins in verse 13 by saying, You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now, before we get into the impact that salt had in that particular culture, and in a bit in ours as well, I want to share a quick word on the value of salt. Yes, the value of salt. 
See, for us, we don't think of salt as a particularly valuable item. In fact, it's not highly priced. It's very cheap. It's accessible, right? It's not a, it's not a premium item for us, if you will. And so when we hear Jesus pronounce to those of us who are his followers, you are the salt of the earth, we don't think in terms of value, but we should. Because in the ancient world, salt was extremely valuable. It was extremely valuable because it had multiple uses. You could use it and utilize it in many, many different ways. In fact, uh, the Roman government at times even paid its soldiers in salt. So that if a soldier was worthless or not doing his job, they would say he is not worth his what? Salt. That's where we get that phrase. He's not worth his salt because salt was valuable. It was worthwhile. So, by calling beatitude believers salt, Jesus is making a value statement. He's saying, you are valuable to me and we add value to the world. In fact, uh, preaching today, a great magazine once told a story of a, of a man by the name of Stan Caffey. Now, Stan Caffey was cleaning out his garage and his attic like many of us have, have done before, and he was just seeking to get rid of items. And so he donated many of his items to Goodwill or a particular organization like that. Now, one of the items that he donated turned out to be a tattered copy of the Declaration of Independence. Now, it had been hanging in his garage for over a decade. See, Stan's trash turned out to be another man's treasure because this particular version of the declaration was turned out to be a, a rather rare copy made in 1823. A man by the name of Michael Sparks spotted it, identified it, and purchased the document, are you ready, for $2.50. He then later auctioned it off for over half a million dollars. Not a bad profit, right? Brothers and sisters, We like this tattered copy of the Declaration of Independence. You and I, who are followers of Christ, are worth often more than we think. It's a good and healthy thing for us just to pause and for me as your pastor to encourage you, those of you who follow Christ, just to let you know, you're valuable to God. God loves you. You you matter to Him. And that's no trite thing. Well, he says, friends, if you're a beatitude believer, you're salt. You're valuable, but salt is not just valuable. It's valuable because it has an impact on its world. So let's begin to think about Jesus' image. What type of impact or influence did salt have at the time that he spoke these words? Multiple uses, I think three of them stand out. Salt in the ancient world and still today, does at least three things. Number one, salt in the ancient world created passion. And I'm going for peace here. So what I mean is it generates an appetite. It generates an appetite. It creates an appetite on the piece of food that we're eating. And so um, in our household, we have one child in particular, and I won't share her name, but she is often so busy that she just doesn't want to eat her dinner. And so it is literally almost every night a fight to encourage her to eat her meat and to eat her fruit and to eat her vegetables. And so I will say, Sawyer, that's who it is. 
I'll say, Sawyer, would you like some salt on your meat, right? Sawyer, would you like some salt on your vegetables? What am I trying to do? I'm trying to create in her an appetite for her meal so that she can eat, right? See, in this context, Jesus says that we too, when we are beatitude believers, can create an appetite for God in the world. We can create an appetite, a hunger, an interest in God in the world around us. This is what Peter refers to. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, I'll just read it to you. But notice the similar language. Peter wrote this. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I think that's what Peter is saying. He's saying that we can be salt. We can create a passion an interest, an appetite in God by the way that we live. We live such good lives so that they see our good deeds. And the day that God visits them, I, I take it to mean to bring salvation. It's because they've seen something in us. One pastor told a story of a young salesman. And this young salesman was new on the job and he was very disappointed, in fact, even distraught, because he lost a, a, a rather big sale. So he was talking to his sales manager about it, and he lamented, I guess you, it just proves that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him what? Drink, right? And the, the wise sales manager replied, <clears throat> he said, son, take my advice. Your job is not to make him drink. Your job is to make him thirsty. To make him thirsty. Friends, that's our job too. We are the salt of the earth. It's our job to make them thirsty. So we need to think, are we creating in others, those who uh, aren't Christians, an interest, a thirst, an appetite for God? Because they see things in us, in our marriage, in the way we run our business, in the way we treat our spouse, in the way we parent, in the way we act at ball games. Do they see something so different and unique and, and yes, even supernatural in us that they're like, Something's going on there. I've got to find out what's causing this type of change. Well, salt creates passion, but it also creates pleasantness. It creates pleasantness. See, it, it makes food more enjoyable to eat. I was a, a youth pastor at a small Baptist church when I was in college. And I had the privilege of, uh, of serving under a godly pastor. And I remember him for a lot of things, but one image stands out. I would often go to lunch at his house, and his wife would make delicious food. And being a single young man that was just sticking around, uh, they, they often had me over for lunch, kind of like what we're doing for Justin and Angelica. And so I remember we would have the meal, and uh, pastor would pray, and we'd pray. And the first thing he would do is he would grab the salt. Reasonable enough, right? He grabbed the salt, and then he would do this. I'd be like, okay, my turn. He doused his food. I am telling you, I don't know how he could eat it. It was literally drowning in salt, right? Apparently, it made his food taste better. And that's what salt does, right? It, it makes a pleasantness, so to speak. Similarly, 
A beatitude believer makes life more pleasant for those around them. In fact, Paul picks up on this image of salt, making life for other people around us more pleasant in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Let's listen to it together. Paul says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. And then he says this, Let your conversation be always full of grace. And then he says this, Seasoned with salt. Let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. See, Paul says that when we interact with unbelievers, and our, our speech in particular um, is, is full of grace, graciousness, in a sense, it's like, it's like we're adding salt to that relationship, right? We're making life more pleasant for them. So friends, we need to ask ourselves, are we creating pleasantness in our world or are we creating more pain for others? Are our words seasoned with salt or would you say they are seasoned with sourness? Are they full of grace or are they full of gall? See, salt creates passion and it creates pleasantness and it also, third, it creates preservation. See, in the ancient world, salt was used as a way of, pre, uh, of preserving food and retarding decay. And in a similar way, you and I, Beatitude believers, we serve in our world and our culture as moral preservatives. We are, in a sense, moral preservatives, agents that retard ethical and moral decay. I came across this quote. I was reminded of it this week in my study. And it's a fantastic quote. There was a, a man by the, by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville. And I hope I'm saying his name right. He was a Frenchman, a French philosopher. And uh, he lived at the, the time of the American Revolution and the start of our great democracy. In fact, he was so intrigued by what was happening in America that he came to visit America to study our new democracy. And he wrote a book about it. It's called Democracy in America aptly titled. And he studied our newly established democracy. And then he wrote this. He wrote these words about the the American church's preserving power. It's great. He says this. He says, not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power, speaking of America, her genius and power. And then he said this. He said, America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Isn't that so true? Because salt is a preservative. Friends, the church in any culture is meant to be moral preservatives on that culture. So we need to ask, Could a philosopher say that of the American church today? If he or she came to look at our American churches, would they write the very same thing? Would they say that? Are we acting in our community and in our state and in our culture and in our nation as moral preservatives? Friends, salt creates passion. It creates pleasantness. And it creates preservation. So, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But that's not all he said. Let's keep reading in verse 13. He then speaks about how the impact of salt can be lost or diminished. He says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, 
How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So we need to understand something here. While modern salt, the salt in our salt shakers, doesn't break down, so to speak, the salt then that was collected around the Dead Sea contained a mixture uh, with other minerals. And it allowed the pure salt to be potentially washed out. And when that would happen, it would leave a useless residue. And what do you think they would do with that useless salt, uh, not salty residue? They would coat the roadways with them to, to make the roadways hard. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said? The simple point that Jesus is making is as salt then could lose its saltiness and thus its impact. So we too, as his followers, can lose our testimony and our impact. I don't believe he's speaking about loss of salvation here. He's speaking about loss of impact, loss of influence for a born-again Christian. I've shared this story before, so I'll make it brief. Also, when I was in college, I served at a small Baptist church on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, and on Wednesdays, I served as a youth pastor. But when I was in college, I was a, a part of a, of, a, of a church. In fact, it was called Grace Bible Church. And uh, it was there at the, the town that I went to college, and I, I was also involved in that church, um, Bible studies and, and that sort of thing. The pastor there at the time uh, was a man by the name of Dwight Edwards. Now, you may be familiar with the last name, Edwards, because he was like the great-great-great-grandson of the famous uh, American preacher Jonathan Edwards, if you're familiar with him. And so this man had a pastoral legacy, and boy, he had, I think, some of Jonathan Edwards' gifts. He was an incredible preacher, an incredible teacher, an incredible writer. And he had an influence in that town and beyond and in my life in a whole host of ways for the good um, in those four years that I was there. Fast forward, I was in seminary uh, at Dallas Seminary. And we got word that uh, this pastor, Dwight Edwards, he was also on the board of Dallas Seminary, which is why we got wind of it, um, came to light that he had been unfaithful to his wife, leaving her and his family uh, for a short period of time. And you can imagine the impact that that had on that local church, but not just that local church, that community as a whole. So friends, I don't, I don't think this man lost his salvation. But let me ask you, did he lose his saltiness? He did. He lost his saltiness, his impact on the world. And friends, we can too. So how are our, how is our saltiness these days? Staying salty? Or is our saltiness fading? Well, we are the light, excuse me, the salt of the earth, but not only that. Notice the second picture that Jesus gives, starting in verse 14. The image of light. He says in a similar fashion, you are the light of the world. Salt of the earth, light of the world. The fact that Beatitude believers are called here the light of the world, I think, implies and tells us something about the world. Friends, if the church is the light of the world, what does that imply about the world? What is it in? Darkness. It's in darkness. Spiritual darkness. The darkness of sin and rebellion and Ignorance of God's revelation and ignorance of the gospel under God's judgments. And friends, you and I well know that when we make decisions 
And when we live our life in the darkness, it usually leads to pain, into bad decisions. Back in the early, early days before electricity, a story is told of a tight-fisted old farmer. I'm sure we don't have any of those around these days. But back in those days, before electricity, a tight-fisted old farmer was taking to task a hired hand because the hired hand uh, had gone a-calling, as they say, on his girl those days, and he had used one of the farmer's lanterns. And the farmer was not pleased with the young man's use of his lantern to go calling on his girl. And so the farmer said, why, son, why did you do that? And then he said, well, when I went a courting, I never carried one of those things. He said, back in my days, I always went in the dark. To which the young man wisely replied, yes, you did. And take a look at what you got. So, how are believers, how are believers impact to be like that of a light? Two things, I think at least, and they're pretty obvious. Light reveals. Number one, light reveals things, right? It shows you reality as it is. That's what light does. It helps us see more clearly what is true, right? What is reality? I'm sure you've been there before. It's the middle of the night, and presuming you have, you know, no night lights or anything like that, it's dark in your house. Let's say you're up to uh, use the restroom or whatever, check on a crying kid, and, and you're up in the middle of the night, and you're kind of mindlessly um, trying to do your business and check on whatever you need to do, and you don't want to wake yourself up too much, so you're wandering around a dark house only to be rudely awakened when you step on something you didn't see or you hit something that was not supposed to be there, but it was left there. You've all been there, right? We've been there. In the darkness, you were seeing reality not for what it was, right? For only what you thought it was. But when you turn on the light, what happens? You see clearly. You see that there's an object in front of you. You see that that door has been left open. Open. Your face is about to hit it. You see reality for what it is. Similarly, Christians are the light of the world. We are to shine the light of God's truth into our world, revealing things as they are. So, friends, as, as followers of Christ... We tell people who God really is, not who they think he is. They, we tell people who they really are, not who they think they are. We tell people what the problem with the world and the problem with them really is. We tell them the truth. We tell them the only way it can be fixed. We point them to the only person who can do the fixing. We illuminate the culture on what God says on a whole host of issues. Light reveals. And that's what we're supposed to do as well. But not only that, light illuminates. That is, it stands out. It stands out. Jesus picks up on this trait of light when he says this. Verse 14. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. What? Instead, he says, they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to everyone in the house. See, Jesus picks up on the simple truth about light. It illuminates. It stands out. 
right? Just like a, a town, a city that's up on a hill in those days in Israel, uh, little towns would often be made at the top of a hill for, for coolness purposes and for protection and those sort of, sort of things so that when you were going up to a hill, you would see the lights of the, uh, of the, of the town. And it'd be obvious, there's a town, right? You can't miss it. There it is. In the same way, right, Jesus uses a simple illustration. No one, uh, as it's getting dark, goes in their house and finds a lamp and lights it only to put it out. That doesn't make any sense. You don't, you don't do that. Nobody naturally does that. And interestingly enough, he, uh, he, he likens this, this lamp that you can see hopefully on the, on the slide behind me. Uh, in, in those days, uh, houses were not multiple rooms, generally speaking. They were like one large room. And so if you wanted to provide light for the entire house, Generally, all you needed was one lamp. And that's what Jesus is, is pointing to here. So if you wanted to provide light, you would uh, light the lamp, much like this one, and you'd put it on a lampstand, and it would, it would shine, right? You couldn't miss it if you were in the house. In fact, this lamp in particular was found in the, uh, uh, in the Jewish community, uh, the kind of cave community known as Qumran. And uh, it dates all the way back to the first century, the time of Jesus. So most likely, this is the kind of lamp that Jesus is referring to. He says, people don't do this kind of thing. His point is not that they shouldn't hide their lights. What is his point? It's that they don't, right? It's not that they shouldn't. It's just they, they naturally don't. We naturally let our light shine. Friends, I wonder if we are naturally letting our light shine. When we go to work, when we go to school, when we go to community events, or are we doing what Jesus said doesn't happen? Are we covering up our, our light, our influence? Are we afraid to be identified as Christians, as followers of Christ? Are we ashamed? Jesus said, light illuminates. You can see it. Well, Jesus closes with the point in verse 16. He says, in the same way, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, just as a city's light shone for travelers to see and a lamp lit a, uh, shone its light on the entire house, so here Jesus calls us to let our lights shine. And specifically, what does he mean? What is the, our lights in this context? Let your light shine before others that they may see your what? Good deeds. Your good deeds. Your morality. Your ethics. Your, um, your holiness. Your devotion. Right? Now, Jesus is not saying, this will become clear later in Matthew, Jesus is not saying that we do good works so that other people can see them. That's not what Jesus is saying. He has harsh words for people who do that in just a few chapters, right? He's not saying, hey, go out and do good stuff so that people can see you. No, that's not the point. Who do we want to be seen through our good deeds? Us? No. Our Father. Significantly, for the first time in Matthew, Jesus calls God and encourages his followers to call God what? Our Father. Our Father. This familial image that we, though foreign to him and aliens and rebels, haters of God, he says when we come to know Christ, that we are adopted 
as sons and daughters. And we have a privilege of calling God our Father. So I want to ask a quick question before we close here. Do you think that the, the followers of Christ who heard this message, certainly the four disciples that he had already called to be a part of the twelve, who, who knows who else is a part of the large crowd gathered here on the, on the hillside, do you think that they got it? Do you think they understood this? Do you think they let their light shine? Do you think they let their salt be tasty? I think they did, though not perfectly. The church historian Rodney Stark, he wrote a book. And the book, it's a long title. It's called The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force. It's a big title. And in that book, he speaks from a historical perspective about the impact that the early church had on the culture around it. I just want to share a few of these things. Number one, they let their light shine. They were the salt of the earth by the way that they loved. They loved well. They loved each other well. When illness or plague or disaster struck, the church was there for each other. But not only that, historians tell us that they extended their love and their care for those outside the church, for their pagan neighbors. In fact, one really good example is that there was a a plague that broke out in the city of Rome. And many people were ill, many people were sick, many people were dying. And the pagans in Rome, uh, essentially, there was a mass exodus. And they left Rome because the plague was there. And guess who else they left in Rome? Fathers, children, friends, because they were sick. They just left them. They left them to die. As pagans moved out of Rome, guess who was moving into Rome? Christians. They were moving into Rome to care for those who were suffering, often at the cost of their own health and even their own lives. They loved well. He also points out that the Christians' treatment of women was dramatically better than the culture around them. He points out that uh, many women in the first century uh, had forced abortions and had uh, massive trauma and even loss of life. They were forced, uh, if not to commit uh, infanticide. But Christians protected them. They protected pregnant women. They cared for abandoned babies. As it relates to ethics and morals, Christians let their light shine. They refused the gladiator games. They argued that every human life, even slaves, had worth and dignity, should be protected. They helped the homeless, the impoverished, the orphans, the widows. They pursued a completely different sexual ethics than the pagans around them. And in all of these ways, and in many, many more, the early church did what Jesus said. They were the salt of the earth. They let their light shine. So friends, the early church, though imperfect, let their light shine. How are we doing that today? Are we letting our light shine like they did? Well, we've spoken then of the importance. Jesus has spoken of the importance that his disciples uh, demonstrate their righteousness in a public manner. Next, Jesus deals with a more fundamental question. What is true righteousness? In other words, Jesus says, let your good deeds, right? Let your light shine for others, that they may see your good deeds. Friends, who gets to define what is good? What is a good deed? How do we know what is good and righteous? 
Well, Jesus is going to answer that next week as we move into verses 17 through 24. And guess what he's going to say? He's going to say, the Bible does. He's going to say the Bible gets to define what is good and what is righteous. And not just the way the religious leaders interpreted the Bible. No, the way he interprets the Bible. Because Jesus always interprets the Bible the right way. So next week, Jesus answers the question, what did he believe about his Bible? Friends, let me ask you, what do you think Jesus believed about the Bible? Do you think we, his followers, should believe what Jesus believed about the Bible? Shake your heads. Yes, we should believe that. And then secondly, what does living the scriptures out faithfully really look like? Jesus is going to take a look at six biblical passages. He's going to say, the religious leaders say, this is what this means. And he's going to say, but but I tell you, this is what real righteousness looks like. That's next week. So here's how we're going to close. It's going to be a little bit different, but not altogether awkward. I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to sing a, 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 a verse of a song that you'll be very familiar with. This little light of mine. So stand with me, please, as we close. I won't make you hold your finger or blow it out or anything like that, right? But let's sing it together. One line. It's very easy. Here we go. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. All right, let it shine. See you.